I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Welcome, everybody. Uh, So for this episode, we are going to be discussing the novel Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Very excited to talk to you about that, Sadie. Me too. Um, Before we get started, a few uh, PSAs. Um, So first, the next book that we're going to be discussing um, is called There, There. It's by Tommy Orange. Um, Came out in uh, 2018, I believe. I'm really excited about this book. Um, it, just a little synopsis, it follows 12 characters from native communities, all traveling to the big Oakland powwow, all connected to one another in ways they may not yet realize. Um, so I'm really excited about this. The book got a lot of, um, accolades when it came out, books of the year by the post, NPR, Time, um, O, all of those, um, publication so I'm excited about it should be good so again it's called There There by Tommy Orange so if you want to read that go ahead and pick it up from your local bookstore so that you can be part of our discussion when we start that so that won't be um speaking of that's our second PSA we will not be discussing that on our next episode we're actually going to be talking about the play Hamlet Yay. Um, we were so this was Sadie's great idea because we were really inspired by Hamnet when we read the book and thought it would be really cool to kind of review uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet again and kind of have a little discussion about it um, after reading Hamnet. So great idea, Sadie. Thank you. Um, So maybe should we chit chat about what our libation is this evening? What are you drinking? Sure. So I am drinking, uh, I guess you would call it a bee's knees. So I am drinking it with Empress Gin. It's like this very beautiful indico colored gin that changes color when you put lemon juice in it or lime juice nice um it's gorgeous and then it's honey as well so it's lemon honey and gin and the reason I picked this one is um it reminded me a lot of like Agnes's garden and her Hmm. beekeeping and um all of her plants and everything I thought it it just took me to her garden in Stratford I like it. I was kind of on the same page. I am drinking a blackberry cucumber mule. Um, just trying to nice. think of something gardeny, flowery, mm-hmm. um, kind of light. Uh, so just blackberries, some cucumber slices, mint leaves, vodka, lemon juice, um, some simple syrup, and then ginger beer. And then I put a little mint sprig on it because I really like mint. So oh, that sounds it amazing. Is delicious. So I'm. I see we were on the. <laughs> the same libation wavelength with with our drinks, so that's cool. Yeah, I have also I also have in case this one doesn't tide me over. I have a classic ale to wash it down. Oh, you have backup. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have a backup drink. Okay, Just good in to case. know. Yeah, I I might finish this one before we even get past the summary. So right. probably would have been a good idea to have a backup as well. <laughs> I'll have to pace myself. Um, well, Sadie, since you picked Hamnet, would you be so kind as to give us a little summary of, of the novel? Sure. So this book was written by Maggie O'Farrell, and it was published in 2020. The novel follows the story of a family, specifically the wife of a rather famous playwright and writer, as they grapple with the staggering loss of their only son, Hamnet. 
This book is a study on grief, parental love, and the distances that can occur between loved ones when faced with tragedy. It asks, how does one move on from terrible loss, and what do we do to fill the empty spaces with that um, that was left behind? And is it even possible? Thank you. Um, I did. So I was curious about, um, because I always, you know, thought uh, Shakespeare's wife was Anne. Yeah. And apparently, even though it's written in the book as as Agnes, A-G-N-E-S, it's actually pronounced Annes or Agnes. Yeah, yeah. She kind of says that in the book, that it's mm-hmm. like more of the French, like old English pronunciation. Yeah, so I was like, okay, I'm going to get this right since I just butchered almost every name in Circe. Uh, so I really wanted to, to get it right. Um, I keep saying Agnes in my head just because of the spelling, but I, I do really like the Agnes. Agnes, yeah. I like it too. I, I think the name is really interesting um, right off the bat because she is known as Anne Hathaway by most people, but then I read mm-hmm. an interview with the author and she said that when she was doing research for it, she found... Um, Anne Hathaway's father's will and he leaves it behind you know this dowry behind to his daughter and then he writes out Agnes so she the reason she went with Agnes instead of Anne which is she's usually known by is because you know she was like well what if we were wrong the whole time you'd think the dad would know her name better than you you know the parish (laughs) one one would think one would think um all right well since you picked this novel Sadie why don't you you know, kind of share what, what led you to, to pick this, what, uh, grabbed your interest? Hmm. Well, I'd seen a lot of people that, um, I follow on like YouTube and Instagram talk about this book, but also I, I think what initially intrigued me by it is when we read last summer, we read, um, Mirror in the Light by Hilary Mantel. And when I was looking into that book and and everything this author came up a lot and this book specifically came up a lot which made me want to read it for sure and then when I saw um just the theme about it and how it was more about the people behind the scenes rather than William Shakespeare himself it really intrigued me and I love I love historical fiction when it does that when it kind of peels back and looks at the people who've been more ignored by history yeah I agree for sure and speaking of, since Sadie brought it up, uh, if you guys have not read any of Hilary Mantel's books, but specifically her Wolf Hall trilogy, stop listening to us and go get them and yeah. read them because they're fabulous. Um, she's one of my favorite authors and her Wolf Hall trilogy, which is just great. So, and and actually, was it on what was it on HBO or they did like a little series from yeah. the first book? I it's, don't remember uh, what it was th- on, but that was really good too. Actually, I think it was masterpiece theater or something but it's yeah yeah, it's the first two books and all I want is for them to bring it back for the last one (laughs) but I don't think it'll happen I know I want that and I want George R. Martin to finish his Game of Thrones trilogy but I don't think I'm ever going to get that wish either I mean what else did he do during the pandemic just write your book sorry I looked I looked at his blog and he said that he'd recently busted out a hundred pages over the weekend I'm like I think he lies that would be great if this book probably weren't 5,000 pages based off of how you talk about it. I think he lies. I'll believe it when I see the book in my hand. I mean... All right, anyway, sorry. (laughs) Um, My cat is in my closet. 
we can cut this out later, but he must be really mad that I'm here without Brian being here because he climbed onto the ceiling above the bathroom and is now in the closet looking at me very peeved. So if we hear any meowing, it is T-Bomb and he can... He can handle himself. I'm sure he'll just. Is he like up above you right now? You're looking up. Is he? Yeah. Like. Oh, yeah. He does look pissed off at you. (laughs) Goodness. He does does not understand why he's being shut out and why Brian's not here to entertain him. This is pretty funny. I did not foresee this happening. I think he'll be fine. Um, It's okay if we, you know, um, if it. If we have a cat interruption, we have a cat interruption. I mean, that's <laughs> okay. just that's just the way of life. Like, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's just, well, it, it is what it be is. safe, be safe. Okay. <laughs> um. All right. Well, yeah. Let's get started. So I, I really I liked this book a lot. I really liked the character, um, Agnes. Yeah. Um, it it was kind of a hard book to read in that it it's very um. Um, it just was very, it brought up a lot of emotions. Um, so kind of the, the gist, you know, is that it, it talks about, um, Agnes and there's kind of two ongoing narratives, um, going, so one is back in time when he's never named in the book, but Shakespeare meets yeah. Agnes and kind of their courtship. And, um, it's mostly about her. It's really not that much even about Shakespeare. And I love that she never really names him. I do he's too. called the Latin tutor. He's called her husband. He's called the playwright. He's called all yeah. these different things, but he's never he's never called Will, William, Shakespeare, like nothing. His name's never mentioned, but you know exactly who he is. And, um, and so I really liked uh, that it was mostly about her and her relationship to him and her family and their kids. Um, so there's that part of the story and then it's also talking about when I mean and again they don't necessarily name it but when the bubonic plague comes and and touches them and at first you think her daughter Judith is going to die and mm-hmm. um and then about her son Hamnet who who ends up um getting infected with the plague and so it's kind of going on you know the story's telling these two separate stories and um yeah and it's it's sad I mean spoiler alert Hamnet Hamnet succumbs to the plague and so then it talks about I think I think the most affecting part for me of the novel is reading about how this marriage this husband and wife deal with this grief of losing a child yeah and how they they separately handle that and so that was very affecting just with having a child it just kind of made me think of those things so that was it was kind of a hard read a little bit I had to take some breaks every now and then yeah, it's heavy. It's it's definitely heavy, and there's not really a sense of relief from it throughout no, the whole thing. Mm-mm. It's just heavy from the beginning. And um, it's also, I, I think, it, it, part of it was heavy, too, because I think it's just obviously very uh, pertinent to our current situation in the world. Um, this is a book about a plague, and we're reading it pretty much during a plague, and it's... You know, I, I mean, I think our situation's not as as dire, obviously, as, like, the bubonic plague was for them back then, but this, still, this feeling of kind of, uh, anybody in your life could catch it kind of at any time and, and could possibly, guy, like, die or go, it's, it's, I think, that same kind of, like, anxiety and concern that they were dealing with back then. 
Yeah, I think one of my favorite parts of the novel, I think it's chapter 10, um, it's a really short, short, short chapter that kind of just goes through, it, it almost takes you out of the story that it was telling, and it, and it talks about how the plague made its way to to England and to where they are. You know, it talks about how it transferred. It kind of made me think of that movie, what was it, Contagion? Mm-hmm. You know, with um, Matt Damon, I can't remember who else was in it. And, and yeah, just really pertinent to what we're experiencing now and just how something like this spreads and how by the time you figured it out, it's kind of too late. And just, it almost seems just like this odd chance and, and now you have this plague. So I thought that was, I really liked how she kind of took us out of what she had been writing about and put this little, I don't know what you'd call it, but just, just this little mini chapter in here yeah. about here's how the plague transferred. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I like that she did that. Yeah. I kind of felt like a, like a movie montage, almost like a little mm-hmm. vignette outside of the story that yeah, we're so just vignette, watching all these, all these different characters kind of walk and seeing how all these pieces are connecting and then you know at the end the ball kind of drops and and the object or the person comes into contact with a character that we care about and we just know what what's happening and how everything happened and just again like you said like how it really is just up to chance and there's no way that it can be controlled and Mm -hmm. I think that for Agnes that's specifically really difficult for her because um, in this book, it's really interesting. She kind of has the gift of foresight, and um, she's kind of a witchy woman, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, they call is, her a witch. She does a yeah. lot with with herbs, and um, you know, when when they when the book starts out, they have this great scene of foreshadowing where she's tending to her bees, and she gets this sense of like uh, of doom that something bad's happening. And we know, yeah. as the readers, that that this sickness has kind of come for her children already, but she, she dismisses it. She dismisses her intuition and continues to tend to her bees and her other things that she uses. You know, she creates, I don't want to say potions, but elixirs and things like that to help people with their ales and, and things. And, and so it already starts off the bat with almost acknowledging that she's kind of got this power. She has this, you know, foresight. She has kind of almost the ability where maybe she could have stopped it. And, you know, she couldn't have, right. But, she you know and so you already sets it up with we know what's going to happen and not only do we know and she doesn't but we know that she's going to just feel horrible because she ignored this feeling that she had I mean I feel like that's definitely one of my worst nightmares of have being able to prevent something catastrophic from happening and not right like what a way you know especially if she obviously likes to be in control she likes to you know she's not afraid of her power she doesn't shy from it she doesn't pretend to be something she's not and so then to I think feel like she could have used her power and didn't must be just the worst feeling in the world right and also like the sense too that it failed her because for the first time it it, you know she's not really able to see she wasn't able to predict that it was going to be Hannah instead of Judith you know Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like the love for her her children kind of like blinded her from her gift in a way because previously in the book it talks about how she would be able to like see a stranger and she would know how they were going to die or like how many Mm -hmm. children they were going to have she knew she was going to be surrounded by two children when she died and so she's also living like while she's raising her kids with that kind of shadow hanging over her because she's never really been wrong before but she knows that she's only going to have two kids with her when she dies and 
I don't know, just the idea that in some ways, like, the care and love that she has for her kids seems to be, like, the one thing that stops her from seeing the way she normally can. It's frustrating for her. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think I really liked the description of of Agnes and her relationship with... um, I mean, it definitely it's interesting to, to think about her relationship with who we know of, of Shakespeare, but I think it was even more interesting, her relationship with her, in the book is portrayed as her stepmother, her real brother, but then also Shakespeare's family, yeah. um, and her relationship with, with the people in the town, because she moves from this farm to now she's living in the city, and what that's like, and just all her different relationships with different people I thought were really interesting, especially the relationship with um her her stepmother she's kind of almost this like cinderella character right like her mm-hmm. her father dies and leaves her this big dowry and and you can tell that he really cared for her and loved her and her brother and then his wife that he marries and her now stepmother they do not see eye to eye mm-hmm. i guess is a mellow way to put it um and she kind of lives this tortured existence um until she meets shakespeare and um they they concoct a plan to be able to get married by getting her pregnant basically um which was kind of funny I love the scene in the apple shed like what kind of lovely biblical references has she weaved in there (laughs) they're like having sex in this like apple drying shed yeah (laughs) and then that's where she conceives their child and then that's what they're going to do so that they can be allowed to be married and yeah it was interesting how she put together kind of those historical details of that's kind of what it was like and this is what you know your life wasn't your own necessarily and you really are marrying into family and it was all this negotiation and I think she did a good job of kind of putting those historical details in without making it like oh okay I'm reading a historical book about this is what life was like she she weaves those details really well I think yeah it still felt like a very universal story like, it felt like something that you could have gone through even if you weren't in Tudor England, you know? Um, sure. Mm-hmm. I, I really loved how that, like, initial love story between her and, and William Shakespeare starts because it's so, like, they're both just so heavily involved in it and they both want it so badly. Like, I love how it feels like, to me anyway, that they really are in love with each other. And when you look at, like, a lot of the way that people have written about um, his wife before it's very much in the sense that she like trapped him in a marriage because she mm-hmm. was like this older woman and she seduced him and then you know he went off to London to be away from her because like he didn't love her or something like that like that's how it's portrayed a lot of the times like people are very I think in fictional especially portrayals of William Shakespeare I think that it's very caught up in like the bachelor like lifestyle of being in London and and like the adventure and all the women and him being this kind of like I mean character in a play in a way of like very romantic and in his endeavors with multiple women at least that's how I feel like I've seen him portrayed in the past and I love that this is just a completely different um vantage point for their relationship and and just like the mutual kind of equality and respect that they have for each other yeah, I, I really enjoy that little section of the book where she's discussing, you know, and, and I think it does portray Adonis as someone who's 
kind of in control of the relationship, but not in a controlling way. Just she's in control of herself. She knows what she wants. She knows how to get it. She knows, I mean, and she knows so much about other people, right? Because she has this gift of, of kind of foresight and of like reading people a little bit. And, and she identifies that there's something in her husband that is not necessarily meant for this town they're living in that's not meant for following in his father's footsteps who makes gloves um and is abusive and mm-hmm. she, he's 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 an artist you know and she doesn't necessarily name things um she doesn't say oh he's an artist and he needs to go right place but she knows that there's something in him that needs to get out and it's not getting out and it's her idea to send him to london and she concocts this whole plan for him to be able to go to London and for his father to be supportive and for him to live there and it's because she knows that he just can't he can't stay in this domestic small what he feels is small life and I thought that was a really poignant turning in their relationship you know she's sacrificing her own um, convenience her own relationship her own love and and all of that so that this person that she loves can go be who they really are and can go yeah. can go create and be an artist and not only for himself but for other people and you know and he writes and then he doesn't write as much and you know he's mm-hmm. he's out there doing what he's supposed to do and she's kind of holding down the fort and she seems okay with it until you know they lose their their child and then you realize what a sacrifice she she made I just thought it was a really poignant part that the she did that almost for the greater good kind of you know like she she sent him there so he could be who he needed to be for himself and and for for the world I mean it's not to be hyperbolic but yeah well and I think something I love about that too is that it's not something that they talk about it's not even that she has a specific view of what he should do the idea I think from how I read it is that she sees that he has all this space all this creativity and it's not that they see she sees him being a playwright or a writer or doing that but she sees all this room for like uh, intellectual development and and uh, really just like promise and um, potential that she sees in him from the moment that she met him when she touches that space between his index finger and his thumb um, which is the space that she touches to to get to know these sides of people and kind of see what they're made of, basically. And it's her knowing him well enough without them even having to talk about it with each other that she sees that he's too depressed to really be there and that he's so unhappy. And it's I love how it's kind of the, it's unspoken between them that she's doing this thing and um, and what he's really going to do. Like, he kind of hides the fact that he's not bringing the gloves but he's bringing his books he doesn't they don't talk about it she pretends that she doesn't see it it's it's just this kind of thing this this relationship that I feel like can really only occur between um like two partners in life right like I feel like there are parts of me certainly that like my partner Brian knows about me that nobody else does and vice versa that we don't even necessarily talk about or dive really deep into but it's like a really beautiful part of you know a mutual equal relationship between two adults yeah I can see that I mean I I took it that way a little bit I do think that it's it isn't quite maybe as equal as I'd like it to be like I'd like them to have this lovely equal 
relationship in all sorts of facets because she's obviously not the most uh, usual woman in this time period and he's not the most usual man and Mm. um, they obviously have a really intense and um, special relationship but I think it points out really well too that she still falls prey to I mean she can't read very well so she's already at a disadvantage he's incredibly learned you know I mean he she meets him because he's there as a latin tutor for her step-siblings she, she can't read. She can't really write. She, you know, when he goes to London, she still has to live with his family because she can't go live with her stepmother because yeah. she's not allowed there anymore. And his Shakespeare's mother and father, they're not, you know, abusive to her or mean to her, but there's not a, it's not a loving necessarily relationship. And she's left raising the children. And, you know, I, so I think that the potentials there for them to have been almost like this power couple in a way Mm. and maybe that's what it would have been in more modern times but I think she does a good job of still pointing out that she is at this disadvantage of you know and he he talks about yeah she'll come to London but she that's not possible their children aren't well enough and you know how are you going to do this but he gets to go kind of live his life and and I think she knows that and accepts that sacrifice but I do think that it it points out a little bit that she she really is at a disadvantage and kind of always will be, even though she's so powerful in her own right and she she has so much to give and she's such a good mother and she is so caring and has so much, but she's just at a disadvantage. She doesn't have enough education. She doesn't have enough of a support system. She's a woman. Like, all these things yeah. put her at a disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't disagree with you. I think she's very clearly at a disadvantage as a woman in society. But I think as a couple and as, like, two adults in a relationship with each other, I feel like they're very much emotionally on equal footing. Like, he yeah, doesn't he doesn't tell her he's just going to leave and assumes that she's going to stay and take care of the kids, right? Like, it's something that, that mm-hmm. she has more authority over than he does even, I think. And um, I don't know. I, I think I think that she is definitely at a disadvantage. And I also think that in a lot of ways, I think she kind of like breaks with convention in so many ways that it's, and he, I think, appreciates her for those things. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, why I, I think I, I like their relationship so much it, at the beginning, you know, it, it clearly has um, some of its more difficult moments. Yeah, which which is a result of, of grief, right? Like her, so her daughter um, Judith is the one that contracts the plague. Um, she's a twin with Hamnet, um, and so a good first portion of the book is her um, discovering this and trying to treat Judith and her grief of of this and kind of having this just assuming her her daughter's going to die the one hand of her knows this and the other hand of her doesn't want to admit it and then you know it it talks about how the two twins Hamnet and Judith used to pretend because they were identical twins they used to switch pretend to be each other right and Mm -hmm. and so Hamnet says well let's do that with death and and takes Judith's place and he obviously contracts the plague and they're able to to keep Judith alive but Hamnet dies and and I think that's the that's the heart of the book, right, is is grief um, for all sorts of kinds of loss. I mean, Adonis l- loses her mother, talks about her mother, her, her birth mother not being alive. You know, she mm-hmm. has these vague memories of her. So there's that grief. And there's, I think, the grief of her, when she her father dies and what her new situation is. And then she, 
you know, meets Shakespeare and then she's got these children, but she always kind of knows that there's something going on here. And then the grief of losing their son and what that does to their relationship. And I think that was, I mean, even just such sad, like hard descriptions to read, like when they're talking about how quickly they have to bury Hamnet because Mm. of the plague. They can't wait for Shakespeare to necessarily come from London. They they don't know if he's going to make it in time. They can't have the kind of burials they want to have because it he has to be buried quickly so that the plague won't spread which you know also very pertinent to what we're going through of just not being able to necessarily be with loved ones when they die or when they're sick and what the you know what services are like in burials and just how hard on top of everything else that's already hard that must be and what what that grief must do to people and how it can tear you apart yeah yeah, and I, I love how Maggie writes it all because um, I love how she gives every character that's there like a moment. We get to see a moment of their grief throughout the book. You know, we we get to see the way that Judith mourns her her brother and and the guilt that she goes through as the twin who survived, even though you know her whole life she's been set up as like the weak one that was going to die early. It's the reason they couldn't go to London. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that moment when she asks, um, what's the name for a twin who's no longer a twin? And, you know, she says that there's, you know, when you you call a mother, like a a wife whose husband dies, a widow, you call a child whose parent dies, an orphan, like, but what do you call me? Like, she's just so lost and, and struggles to define herself in a lot of ways. And then also, um, the way that, Mary, um, the mother-in-law, handles the, mm-hmm. the grief because she's lost children before. And she's had, she had so many children and she lost so many children. And how her grief is kind of different, um, but at the same time, like, still very effectual to read about. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, as, as Shakespeare said in Hamlet, there's the rub. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you're not necessarily it, it's not just the single grief of anyone losing your sibling or losing, and especially for a parent of losing a child that Annis is now almost responsible for the grief of her whole family. She has two surviving children that are grieving that she cares for and takes care of. She has her husband and how do we tell him and what's our relation? Like she's caring for everyone's grief as well. And and it's there's no escaping it, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think I think that's that was one of the points I took from it is you're this parent and then you lose a child and that's this unbearable grief. But then there's also the grief of your your other children and of your spouse and that's more grief to carry because that's what you do or most people do as a parent is you you carry the grief of of your family. You carry the the emotions of them because you want to take it away so you do mm-hmm. everything you can too and that's just more that you're that you're adding on to your shoulders yeah Jeez, this is a downer of a conversation <laughs> it, it, it is this I mean this is a downer of a book there's really just like I said I don't think that there's much reprieve or or uh, like explicit joy in this book um Maybe, no, maybe it's, at it's the a, beginning of the relationship, but you know, but the way she weaves it too is like we're weaving back. There's and not because we always book. know. Yeah, always it's know. it's hard to it's hard to to really live in those kind of more fun, lighthearted, joyous moments. You know, because mm-hmm. Anya's has obviously got 
kind of a nice little biting wit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they have interesting interactions with each other. That Those kind of cat and mouse games are always fun to, to read about, but you know what's behind it. So I think, yeah, there's always just this impending doom. Um, it's definitely not a, it's not a happy read at no. all. But, no. but then, but she just, she has such lovely language in it you know she's got really great details like I said I love the scene where they're in the apple shed because it's just such an interesting and she just describes it so well and the smell of the apples and you know the sounds and she just does a really good job of of bringing each um, scene to life with some really lovely details that aren't too overdrawn Um, I don't think I don't I mean she doesn't go on for 50 pages about what the apples smell like so (laughs) it's she does a really good job with it of, of keeping it concise but really you know, p- putting you in that moment. Yeah, she's very, I, th- I think she does a good job of adding um, sensory depth to her descriptions as well. Like, I love how mm-hmm. Agnes is part of, kind of part of her, like, intuition. She smells, like, feelings in the air, right? Like, so, she, you know, when she, when Will is super depressed, she smells that kind of, like, acrid, sour smell in the air, and she knows something's wrong. And when he feels more like himself, it's it's a lighter, happier, um, more pleasant smell that she gets. And, you know, later in the book, when he comes home for the first time in a year since Hamnet died, and she can tell something's off, and then after a while she can start smelling and seeing, you know, that he's had all these affairs while he's been gone. And... I loved how she she used this, you know, kind of like a sixth sense part of smell for her, like where it's deeper than our regular senses. And I just thought it was really evocative of like the moment and the atmosphere. Yeah. And speaking of that, of how she, you know, senses that while Shakespeare has been in London after their son dies, that he's obviously been with other women. I think she does a really good job of, at least for me, I was right to that point where I was like, Ugh, what an ass, you know, like, right. Like, of course, that's how you've got to go find comfort, right? But she does such a good job of that of making the point, even though this isn't about Shakespeare, this is about Agnes and, and Hamnet and the other members of the family, that, it, you know, he he was handling grief as well. You know, he kind of stayed away and had to separate himself and be busy with writing and get into, you know, being with his company of actors. And, and he had, before this, you know, had written had comedies and and more lighthearted plays and then all of a sudden he writes this tragedy and she sees that it's called Hamlet and that's my son's name and and she just has to go see this play she has to see it for herself she can't have anyone tell her about it she doesn't even want him to know she's coming and Mm -hmm. and to see that he's coached or he's directed this actor playing Hamlet to act just like her son like take her son's mannerisms and she just almost feels like she's watching her son grown and it's his name and it's you know she realizes that that's or I think as readers you realize this is how Shakespeare coped this is how he handled his grief like he had to find a way to to get through it just like she did and it just was different and it it doesn't excuse I think anything um behavior wise I think it just points out that grief is messy and there's no there's no manual and you know what what one person does doesn't mean that that's what the other person's going to do and I think it's a dangerous game to start saying this is the right way to grieve this is the wrong way or you know assigning blame but also people are still imperfect beings despite all this a tragedy doesn't make somebody 
um, a saint, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. I think it does a good job of right when you're almost to that point where it's like, oh, come on, man, like bringing, bringing you back to looking at what they're both really going through and, and, um, yeah. and the humanity of, of the characters. Yeah. Cause I mean, she like, she has her own kind of things that she buries herself in, you know, she doesn't leave her bed for days and days or or weeks and weeks she stops cooking Mm -hmm. she stops cleaning she stops she stops kind of mothering in the traditional sense of the word that we would that would be expected of her at the time and I think um you know I mean infidelity is kind of his his version of that on the flip side and yeah it's it's a it's a disregard of trust but I I think in in a way though it was pretty clear that like their trust and their communication was kind of already out the door for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd been gone for a year. His letters are shorter and shorter and shorter. And it's it's just pretty clear that from the beginning, this death was driving them apart at the same time. Like, she was going one direction, and he also turned and faced the other direction. It wasn't like, I don't think she was, like, clinging or like clinging on to him and trying to go to him for comfort and vice versa. Like I think they were both handling it separately, whether that was good yeah. or not. It's just how it was. Well, it's just reality. I mean, you only have so much, you only have so much to give, right? There's only so much room for something. And, and her whole being was really encompassed with this, with this grief. And how is there much room left for anything else or any other kind of relationship? Her relationship for really that year after Hamnet died was, was just with that grief and she was so stricken that she you know she has they talk about in the book that she really um the veil between life and death is much thinner for her you know she she doesn't talk about necessarily that she communicates with the dead but just that she she's much more aware of it maybe than than other people and and can sense when spirits the dead are are there and she keeps searching for Hamnet and can't find him and that's kind of almost like an obsession with her a little bit and there's just no room for anything else like it's it's just all about this death and this grief and this loss and um you know if 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 you don't have enough you don't have enough you know there's there's really nothing she can't pull it from anywhere else and I think it it brings that point that you know having realistic expectations for people and how they act when they're when they're grieving and that expectation is just that people just have to do what they need to do to survive and and it needs to be a judgment-free zone kind of mm-hmm. um while they work through it that's kind of how I I was looking at it while I was reading because I would have some initial judgments and then realizing that you, you just can't yeah and and realizing too like that I don't know like I think it's clear that he doesn't or never did like intend to hurt her you know I, th- I think like that's pretty clear when they have their first conversation kind of after she makes it very clear that she knows what he's been up to and what's going on and part of it is because of that intuition right she can sense kind of like an emotional attachment that's on the bracelet that he brings her and like it belonged to somebody else and how they feel towards her and um you know, when he says he's sorry, I believe him. I do. Like, I, I don't think that he was meaning to hurt her. But I like, too, that she she doesn't let him get away with it, really. 
but I like too that she still you know treats him like a partner in the sense that she works through it so that they can kind of exist together when he's there in a way that's positive yeah I like that she doesn't let him off the hook though I mean I agree I don't think he intended to hurt her but you know intentions great like that's great that your intentions are pure but you one still has to and I I don't know maybe I'm getting up on a soapbox a little bit but I think that that's part of her um, role as a mother and a wife and a woman as well is that she's always thinking of other people right she's always thinking of her Mm -hmm. children she's thinking of how even when she is you know just succumbs to her bed she's still there with her children caring for them she's she's still thinking of her brother she's still thinking of her stepmother and her step siblings and her mm-hmm. father-in-law and mother-in-law she can't escape from any of that she still always has to think about them and she's yeah. always still thinking about him and so I think that while his intentions I'm sure were pure it's quite the luxury he has as as a man in that right. time to really just think about himself and I think that that's kind of her point is I mean I mean no how thoughtless is that like let's give her a bracelet that another woman if not more than one woman I've already given to or but you know it's just like right. come on like I don't know that one just well and it's it, no that definitely arcs me too it's it's and it's also it seems so silly because he seems so aware of her gifts that it's like why did you think she wasn't gonna pick up on this dude yeah it did well that's did you want to get thinking of other did you want thinking get... of other people things I mean I think that, that that's a yeah. that's a skill I don't think that everyone has it and I think it's a skill that we need to learn and hone and you know and and again when people are grieving and I think it doesn't do any good to judge people for it just recognize that that's that's something that we need to do is think about other people yeah um I don't know. That was a weird soapbox I just got on, but that part really, I, I appreciate that she wrote it not as that she excused that, right. but okay, this is what's going on. This is our our state right now. Now let's move into another state. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't just gloss by it. Um, but at a certain point, what what are they supposed to, how can she keep harping on it? Yeah. It is what it is. He's had these affairs. He's had this life in London she's got to figure out who they are now because he's different than when they first met you know he's Mm -hmm. he's coming into his own and she doesn't quite know what that is but she knows he's different he smells different he looks different he's acting different he has a whole different life outside of her and so they've got to figure out a way to to still be in this relationship yeah even though they've they've changed and they haven't changed together mm -hmm. and she's different too you know she has like a different kind of like lightness and you know, I think before she has the twins, she seems very kind of like confident and, and carefree. Like she's very casual about him leaving at first. And she she's very casual about a lot of difficult things that she has to go through. Like when she goes into the woods to have their first daughter. I can't remember her name. It starts with a C, I think. Susanna. Su- oh, an S. <laughs> Susanna. Um, like she goes out there to do it alone in the middle of the woods and you know she just doesn't seem worried about these things and then it's not until she has the twins and she kind of gets first off her gift is blinded and she starts to experience you know what grief might feel like or what powerlessness feels like and on her own kind of like level obviously as a woman in the society that she lives in but I'm not sure exactly where I was going with it, but it just seems like she's changed a lot, too. And, um, 
there's more anger in her at the end mm-hmm. and, and she's angry yeah. up until the end really yeah no she is and I think she's angry like what you were bringing up earlier just of of not you know she I think she could ha- be a little more carefree because she kind of had this power right that she felt like she could rely on and I think that she's angry because she kind of ignores her intuition at the beginning of the book about yeah. something's happening I think she's angry that she can't she can't fix it I think she's angry she tells him she's angry that she didn't she was so focused on nursing Judith that she didn't notice Hamnet you know and she I think she's angry at herself she's angry at at just the world at just life and the situation you know she's angry at him that he's gone um she's just angry um Mm -hmm. and that's you know one of the emotions that she lives in and has to live in and and get through and I think that she's angry like you said up until the end when she goes to to London to see this pain or excuse me this play and then realizes you know I think that's one way to get out of anger is if you think of other people and you can have empathy for other people and realizing what Shakespeare was going through and that this is how he was handling this pain and just because he was gone or just because he wasn't um, maybe expressing his grief in the same way she was that doesn't mean he wasn't grieving and Mm -hmm. that he wasn't trying to also keep Hamnet with him you know I think she was trying to keep Hamnet with them by sensing him by looking for him and I think and Shakespeare keeps him with him by writing Hamlet and by having this actor portray their son and and that's his way of keeping him alive you know through his art and through his work and and I think she realizes that maybe wouldn't um, communicate it in that way but realizes that he was doing the same thing because I think that's part of what she was maybe angry about at least that's how I took it is that okay well you got to escape you know you didn't have to think about this you didn't have to you didn't remember our son you left that kind of a thing because it's 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 easier to be angry at at someone else um well and also it is yeah and it's also it's complicated too when somebody uses your tragedy for art you know and it's something that she doesn't quite understand like she doesn't really show interest in his work out there very much like he doesn't tell her really what he's writing about at least from what we see we don't see all of his letters to her but like it's very clear that I don't think she has a very like full understanding of what he is doing out there. She's never seen it for her own eyes. And so you know they go through this huge traumatic thing and then he can just go back to his art and his work instead of to her in a way like he's kind of like using that more as a crutch than he is using his own partner. And then you know he's using it to kind of capitalize on and I don't think that that's I think by the end like we know that that's not what he was doing it for but that's just the medium that he used but I think that that brings a lot of complicated feelings for the people involved because now it you know she doesn't know what the play is about but it feels like her pain is on display for the world to see and pay a penny for and I think think that's that's a good point I think that's like a, a very like she says something about how just when she learns that he um names it hamlet and she's angry that her son's name now is just like on other people's lips and and that he's now this other character rather than the son and and there's like a lot of anger that she has for these other people kind of getting getting access or um information about their lived experience that's really frustrating without her permission 
And I think that's like a complicated part of art in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that is, is I think it brings up a good point about about art and what you use and how you use it and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And I think that it just all depends on your own outlook on art and what is art and Mm -hmm. what parameters there are. Are there any parameters? And I think there's, there's such a, um, interesting tangled web of that. And it just all depends, I think, on who you are and what you believe and, and all that. And I, I like that it's kind of presented in this, in this way, um, and shows, you know, how, again, his intent was not to cause harm with that, but it caused harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how she handles that and what does that mean. I, and I like that it kind of left it with that. That's kind of the end of the book. It, it doesn't it doesn't really answer any of those questions because I think that that's kind of almost an unanswerable question because it is just so dependent on, I mean, I think it changes. I think if you would ask me that question now, my answer would be different than, you know, 10 years ago or five years from now. Right. It's, it's all going to depend on your own experiences. And also if if you've ever been in that situation as well, Mm-hmm. Um, and had had anything apart as part of your life be be used in that way um I think obviously that would change your change your opinion yeah and you know when I think about it in in kind of like a modern like multimedia way of the complexities of putting people's lives on display like I know that for example podcasts uh crime podcasts are super popular and it's not even that these are like news networks doing it these are just you know, people who like crime, true crime, and they're talking about these people's lives and these victims' lives. And those are, like, I honestly, I know a lot of people like them, but I have a really hard time listening to those because half those victims' families are still alive and, like, they're just using these stories of trauma for profit in a lot of ways. And I think that is really questionable. You know, and I think in this is in this situation, it's different because it, it is also Shakespeare's experience that he's bringing into mm-hmm. it, and I think that's very different than using a, like a complete stranger's lived experience as inspiration. Um, but yeah, again, like it, it is complicated, and the answer kind of changes every time you ask yourself that. I know I would have a hard time if like some of my experiences were just like put on display by. Yeah, it's Somebody a good point. I mean, I could go down another rabbit hole with that. There's a a book. It's on my my list, waiting to be to be bought and read. But it's called Savage Appetites, and it's about mm-hmm. kind of this obsession that it's specifically about um, this obsession that women in particular and white women in particular seem to have with like true crime and mm-hmm. and you know it just was it a couple weeks ago they did a SNL skit about that it was like about watching true crime and I can't remember what the other shows were but just like this obsession we have with it and it makes a really good point about you know what's I don't want to say titillating but what's um, so fascinating and interesting to some people it's also someone's real life tragedy that Mm -hmm. they've lived through and and what what does that mean it's it's an interesting question I'm excited to read that book because I do think it's really fascinating and I think that this um, Hamnet kind of brings that point up a little bit about you know we know this play Hamlet and it's so well known and it's so mm-hmm. famous and it's so affecting and it's so um, it, it holds true today and it, it's just so important yeah. in so many ways but um, we do also know that he had a son that died it doesn't specifically say it was the plague he never mentions it but we know that happened we know that you know so also then it it brings up the human element to 
to that tragedy that now is so famous right. um, and is almost uh, this pop culture um, fodder in some ways and that there's real stories and real people behind it. And I think that regardless, that's always a good thing to try and remember. It doesn't mean you can't be interested. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to enjoy those things necessarily, but I think it's always important to remember that there's real people and real things happening. And um, as long as you remember that, I think, and try and honor that. And I think that that's one of, one of the points that Maggie O'Farrell is bringing up in this in this novel. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like I think also bringing up about like how there's maybe a right way to do it versus mm. you know a wrong way. Like I think you know at first I th- I think Agnes is really upset about the fact that he's using Hamlet's Hamnet's name as um, some big you know, court tale, you know, about kings and princes and, and has nothing to do with their life or their son, but it's, it's when you see it kind of within context and she sees the nuances to it that she sees, like, what the actual element of it was that he was trying to, to bring into reality, which is something that I love at the end of the book, that the way that she describes it. Um, is that uh, she sees that her husband in writing this in taking the role of the ghost has changed places with his son he has taken his son's death and made it his own he has put himself in death's clutches resurrecting the boy in his place he has anesthes done what any father would wish to do to exchange his child's suffering for his own to take his place to offer himself up in his child's stead, so that the boy might, boy might live. And I think that's just, like, a very beautiful idea, and it's a beautiful um, idea of, of, like, kind of going back to what Hamnet did when he died, of, like, switching places and taking the place, if you can, of a loved one so that they can feel less pain. And, you know, whether or not Shakespeare did what he set out to do, you know, he can't he can't really take out the past, but he can at the very least use his gift in the same way that I think Agnes has been trying to use hers to find some sort of peace just to like get move forward and to fill the, the hole that's left behind. Yeah, I think you're spot on. That's a really good point. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about with Hamnet? Um, there was one thing that I thought was interesting, kind of a different kind of theme and idea, but I thought it was interesting the different examples of um, sibling and parent relationships that Maggie O'Farrell mm. gives us. I love Agnes's relationship with Bartho- Bartholomew, uh, her mm-hmm. brother. I think it is a stunning relationship. It, it reminds me of my relationships with my brothers, <laughs> like just of a person I feel like I can talk to who I know like whether I'm right or I'm wrong I know that they're gonna kind of be there for me and in the way Mm -hmm. that I need them to be not even necessarily the way that they might think is correct um and I loved also like how the way that she wrote the narrative kind of weaves in between into different like people's views points of view and I loved how she shows, like, the complicated relationship now that Agnes 
has with her children after. Like, Susanna hates her parents. Like, right. Which is interesting because the whole book, we're kind of set up to be very empathetic and thoughtful towards Agnes and, and William. But at the end, we can see kind of just how... Yeah, they they were different than their own parents, and they solved those traumas that they had maybe as kids, Mm -hmm. but they kind of perpetuated their own trauma in a way towards their kids in unknowing ways, and I think that's very true to to life and parenthood and and relationships we have with our kids. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. It does, and I I think with Susanna. you know, Anna spends a lot of time talking about just how in love she is with this child and how, um, you know, magical her birth is and her mm-hmm. relationship. And yeah, so it's, it's, um, I do think it's an interesting point to, to realize, you know, she, Maggie O'Farrell does a really good job of, like you said, weaving in all these characters and seeing how they're all still affected, even if they're not the main character. You know, sometimes yeah. they think it's easy to forget um, just how far reaching grief can be and it's not necessarily any less important um it, the farther away quote it goes you know and um I think she even brings a good point just how Bartholomew was affected just how everyone is affected by this death and mm-hmm. and grief is just so far reaching and it it levels everyone down right like it <laughs> it just reminds you um it doesn't matter how rich you are it doesn't matter how powerful you may think you are it, you know, Adnes has these powers, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all gonna, you're gonna be affected by it. Death, death comes for all. And I think that that's a theme in Shakespeare's, you know, tragedies yeah. as well. And, and so I think she does a good job of, of kind of weaving those themes in without getting too cute about it, um, yeah. which I think would probably be easy to do. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think overall just the the statements she makes about grief are spot on for me anyway like the way she described it felt um very real to me someone who's lost people and and also to just like the the inevitability of of trauma and loss in life which is again Mm -hmm. a downer but like it yeah it, it doesn't at the same time I think like she shows a, a really good portrayal of the universality of those feelings and um, the the way it spoke to me as true made me feel like, I don't know, not, a, not as alone in my feelings of like emptiness after loss or something, you know, it just felt like this is something that is just part of the human experience and as difficult as it, as it is, I think it's still, you know, I think it's part of what makes it the human experience. Circle of life. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be trite about it, but yeah, no, that's, that's lovely, Sadie. Um, all right. Well, is there anything that you didn't like about the novel? Um, well, on honestly, I think the same things I loved about it, I think I didn't like about it. Like, like, oh, okay. like, Expand uh, on that. like just the, the pain of it, the fact that there's no reprieve it all throughout the book it it kind of not that I felt like emotionally manipulated but like reading a whole book like 300 pages of just like grief and pain just kind of feels like okay like you want me to cry like I know you want me to cry (laughs) and that and that's kind of hard like I don't know if it I don't think there's another way for her to have done it but I think it it makes it, it 
a hard book, I think, to return to, um, because of that, that, like, painful reminder of, of loss and grief. Yeah, it's heavy, for sure. Um, definitely needed, like, I need a palate cleanser after reading it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a heavy book, and yeah, like you said, I liked that. I liked the, the themes it brought up. I liked the things it made me question and think about, um, but then there's sometimes where it's like, I don't really want to be thinking about this. So uh, I think that's a good way to put it, that the things you liked about it are also the things that you didn't like about it. So, um, but that's good. I like things that unsettle, just kind of like we talked about with our last book. You know, I, I would far rather be unsettled and have emotions about something than just read through it and, you know, throw it in the stack and forget about it. So if it has a lasting effect, um, yeah. I think that's that's good. At least for our purposes. At least for our purposes, for sure. I mean, I know, like, this was a hard enough book for me to read. I can't imagine reading this as a mother. And I know that I I listened to um, a couple of interviews with the author, and she herself said that she had tried to write this book, like, three or four times, but she had to wait until her sons were older before she could write about this death at this age, and that it was, like, extremely difficult for her to explore these things as a mother, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I just, like, I know this affected me enough, and I, I know that it would have been probably ten times more effectual for you. Yeah, we just won't, I just won't go there, but yeah, it definitely <laughs> was, it's, it's hard, it's a hard thing to think about, um, so I kind of didn't, I just disassociated a little bit, yeah. but, you know, it's losing a child, I can't even imagine, and I know some people who have, and Right. the the amount of strength that it must take to just survive is astounding. So yeah. I think that she writes very well about just how difficult that is and the level of strength it takes and how far-reaching grief, specifically that kind of grief is. And so I think that, you know, as someone who has not dealt with that but has children, I think she wrote about it in a way that um, I think was very respectful and and poignant so and and I can't speak with authority on it but at least from my viewpoint I think she she wrote about it well even if I didn't necessarily like reading about it if that makes sense yeah yeah for sure cool well that was a nice heavy (laughs) podcast session feeling real light and airy now (laughs) well I'm glad that we're only spending one episode talking about it honestly yeah, I think it'll be good. So, like we said, we're gonna discuss um, Shakespeare's Hamlet yeah. uh, for our next podcast, as well as um, I'm gonna reread it, but then maybe watch. I don't know. Are you gonna watch any? I think I'm gonna watch um, versions. I love the David Tennant Patrick Stewart adaptation. It was like done by. Yeah, PBC. How can you not love Patrick Stewart? Yeah, it's so good. It's so good, and it's. Um, I mean, my favorite thing about Hamlet and, like, the different performances that you get from it is that the actors have so much space to make the exact same lines feel so different. I mean, so mm-hmm. such a different thing. Um, obviously, like, my favorite things to look at, uh, if you're familiar, is, like, the Kenneth Branagh uh, adaptation where he plays Hamlet and it's very much, like, when he's giving that soliloquy to be or not to be, He's very much aware that he's being watched and it like comes off as kind of threatening of like, 
I don't care if I live or die kind of a thing. And then when you watch a David Tennant version, for example, um, it's very quiet and subdued and he's not aware that he's being surveillanced and um, it is like very much like internal and retrospective. And I just love how um, Hamlet gives actors so much freedom in that way. So I, I think I'm going to watch the David Tennant uh, portrayal because it's, it's my personal favorite. Do you have a favorite? Um, I just, I mean, I love Patrick Stewart and anything. Um, wasn't there a Hamlet movie that came out with like Ethan Hawke? Am I uh, thinking of that? Probably. I know that there's a, and it was Mel set Gibson in kind of more one. modern. Oh, I'm not watching that one. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't. Not a Mel Gibson We fan. don't support Mel Gibson in this house. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a Mel Gibson one. I know for sure that I've seen, uh, the Kenneth Branagh one is pretty good. I think there, you're right, there is an Ethan Hawke one, and then also the David Tennant, Patrick Stewart one is a modern take as well. Um, yeah, I think that one's probably my favorite, just because I love Patrick Stewart. Um, yeah. Oh, there is. Here, I found it. Thanks, Google. Um, came out in 2000. Yeah, okay, I remember I watched this in um, a philosophy class I had in college, actually, and we spent a lot of time talking about um, some of the more modern aspects of it. Yeah, Ethan Hawke's in it, Kyle MacLachlan, Bill Murray. Oh, I love oh, Bill nice. Murray. Oh, nice. I didn't know that there's hmm. one with Bill Murray in it. Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll revisit that one too. Um, okay, well I'm gonna I'm gonna watch the David Tennant and this Ethan Hawke Hamlet. Cool, cool, cool. cool. So we'll have a couple different ones to to Try discuss. Yeah, I'm excited. It's it's been a while since I've had an excuse to watch Hamlet. Or read Hamlet. Cool. Well, I'm excited. So that's what we'll be talking about in our next podcast. Um, and I'm really excited to tie it into um, kind of the conversation that we've been having um, about Hamnet. Um, and then again, our next book after next week is going to be There, There by Tommy Orange. So I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Um, and I think that's it. So yeah. good pick, Sadie. I think Thank you brought up some good discussion. And I love that um it's taken like I said I love a book that takes you down other rabbit holes so now we're in the Shakespeare rabbit hole which is a great one and I'm sure we could spend a lot of time there if we so chose yeah um so yeah anything else that you wanted to say about Hamnet or any other announcements uh not really um if you want to send us an email or leave a review or a comment or a dm or whatever have whatever you have access to or feel like doing we would just love to hear you um especially if you have a comment or a concern about anything that we discussed i would love to hear what you have to say about it and i think we would like to bring your ideas into our discussion so you can dm us find us on instagram at lit and libation you can email us at lit and libation at gmail.com and you can leave a review on itunes if you so choose yes please do all right well thanks everyone thank you sadie thank you audra and we'll talk to you next time Bye. bye